Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and we are excited to have another Q&A with Dr. Mike Isretel, who might be extra chirpy now because he's come out of his mini cup. He is now massing and uh, so full of carbs. If you've been following on Instagram, you can see he eats all the cereal, literally cereal boxes. Um, and actually, Mike, have you uh, found a favorite cereal yet? Which one's... Uh, Taking the crown. Have I found a favorite cereal? You know, it's tough because um, with as much cereal as I eat, so I eat 200 grams of carbohydrates and cereal and skim milk almost after every workout. You get sick of cereal really fast of different particular flavors. Um, so I cycle between them. Um, <laughs> cereal uh, cycling. Fruity pebbles. Yeah, exactly. Fruity pebbles, cocoa pebbles, that kind of stuff is pretty good. Um, what else? Uh, smacks, honey smacks. I don't know if you guys have that in the, in the UK. Though. We've, um, are they, I'm trying to think what they are. I think I they're think like do. little balls and they're super sweet. Um, they're, it's like a, their mascot is like a drug addicted frog. Who's like a derelict and can't operate in society. Cause he's like literally stabbing people in the streets for smacks. And they're made from corn. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Golden nuggets. who's the mascot for that shit it's like a little tiny guy who digs and for golden nuggets and i think he's got like a pet (laughs) weird well maybe his pet ran away and it's fucking (laughs) what is his name i think the frog's name is smacks or some shit (laughs) honestly these like characters that represent cereals are just addicts i mean plain and simple like they're you know i I want like a, a cereal box that treats me like an adult fuck this shit i want a cereal box that's like you know heroin smacks and you're like jesus christ and they're like the guy and there's the mascots a junkie and it's like build the junkie and he's like i'll do whatever the fuck it takes to get heroin smacks you're like holy shit build a junkie yeah. you know it's great cereal you literally become addicted it'll ruin your life oh dear yeah i'm i'm now i'm actually on i'm coming up to 500 grams of carbs myself so how's I'm it eating. feeling yeah well i don't know i'm kind of because i kind of reversed out of my contest prep and now i'm trying to be in a surplus but i'm kind of like i must be in a surplus i'm eating a lot but because i've never tried the high carb massing before kind of my scale weight's not completely kind of playing ball at the moment but it's like the scale's not necessarily shifting over these last few days but my physique i can tell is kind of getting a bit softer um so i'm just holding out because i don't want i don't feel too bad um hunger is quite high but yeah, it's nice eating lots of cereal. I've been buying um, Lucky Charms when they've been on offer in our supermarkets, and I do like a Lucky Charm. Lucky Charms are really good, man. They're Anything really good. with those marshmallows, we don't get that in the UK. So Trippy. I have uh, at times shit out marshmallows from Lucky Charms pretty much identically <laughs> to their composition when I've eaten them. And that was disconcerting. And I stopped eating Lucky Charms for a while back then, but I might, I might reintroduce them. Lucky Charms and Reese's Puffs were always my favorite. Um, Reese's they're Puffs, just really. Reese's. Yeah. But I guess they're too high fat, really, for you post. Yeah, I try to do zero grams of fat, so I'm limited like that on cereals. And as the mass progresses, I might expand my repertoire to something more calm. Just like a gram of fat, a gram and a half per serving is really not a big deal. So. Yeah. Awesome. Well, anyway, yeah, everyone yeah. loved that little uh, cereal intro. Um, we'll get straight into the questions now. And the first one is a question on uh, your take on everyday training. 
Um, he said simply being in the gym and hitting it seven days a week uh, because you talked about previously how one day off would be really good. Um, and he just asked if there's any way around it, um, if you could train different muscle groups at different intensities, different movement patterns, sufficiently rotated to be able to hit seven days a week. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that, Mike? Oh, you know, there's tons of ways around it. Um, you could just make sure to train non-overlapping muscle groups, you know, um, and that's totally fine. So, so an example of that kind of split would be you train legs, push, pull, legs, push, pull. And then for the last push and pull, you do not so much bicep, uh, and shoulder work and uh, save it for the seventh day where you do lots of biceps and shoulders and then you have legs that next day to give you a rest and then you get back into the rotation. So it'd be legs, push, pull, legs, push, pull, shoulders, biceps. Um, I don't, I mean, that's just something I came up with literally just right now. It's the first time I ever thought about it because um, why do you have to be in the gym seven days a week? Um, the answer to that question will be uh, that the better answer is to explore psychologically what's going on. And I promise that the journey at the end of that self-exploration will be more productive than anything you can do on a seventh day in the gym. So, um, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, to many of us, training is part of our therapy. The benefit is that it is therapeutic. And it helps us psychologically. But another benefit is that makes us jacked. It makes us lean. It makes us healthy. It gives us something that's a huge part of our lives, super meaningful. So it's all good stuff too. If you get your therapy from that extra seventh day a week, I don't think you get any other benefits. And as a matter of fact, you definitely get costs in the other kind of psychology, which is the psychology of training directly. And that is fatigue psychology, monotony psychology. And you got to be in the gym seven days a week. I almost want to say, go ahead, because you will burn out. And then you won't want to be in the gym seven days a week. The problem with burnout is that sometimes the burnout is a full crash versus a kind of a recession. So instead of being like, ah, seven's too much, I'm going to go back to six, people push it, push it, push it, push it. And then they just quit lifting altogether, especially beginners. And beginners are usually the kind of people that have the grandiose idea to do seven days of training because they get super excited about lifting and getting jacked. They love the results. They love the gym, which is great. And they're like, ah, man, seven, this is going to be great. But the beginners are also the most likely to burn out. Advanced lifters almost never burn out. It's too much a part of their lifestyle. They're also too sensitive internally to fatigue. You know, you know when you're fucked up when you're an advanced lifter, but I'm sure you've known plenty of beginners that just hit hardcore shit for three months and then just left. And they're like, fuck this. Um, so I think that it's better to ask yourself why you want to be the gym seven days a week versus actually being there. Another idea is to just do a cardio session. Like if you really have to show up to the gym seven days a week, just do cardio, do 500 calories on the elliptical or the incline walk treadmill or the bike. Uh, you'll burn plenty of fat. You'll mobilize, you know, for recovery, metabolite stuff. Um, you basically will just, you know, kind of clear, uh, clear the way for higher insulin sensitivity, et cetera. And, uh, that would be by far my best recommendation if you insist on going to the gym seven times a week. But the thirst, the desire that is created, the desire for more training, for harder training, that is created by skipping a day, I think is really valuable. 
So if it drives you crazy to not be in the gym for one day out of the week, good. You should be crazy because you got a hard week of training ahead after that. Use your craziness up on the six days. Um, any thoughts on that, Steve? What do you think? No, as, uh, as soon as I heard this question, I was thinking there's probably various strategies or ways you could end up programming so that seven days wasn't detrimental and worked into your schedule. But it, again, as soon as I saw the question, I was kind of like, why is this person kind of, it's almost like feeding the addiction sort of thing or totally. have they not got anything else going on in their life so they can kind of spend the time doing something better um or totally. not necessarily better but there's no necessary benefits to being in the gym seven days a week over six to- totally it's not a programming issue i mean for you can program people ask you can i program one thing i i guess I, I, it's not so much that i don't like it as so much that i just don't come from this perspective you know i'm like known as the optimality guy i want everything to be optimal blah blah blah, blah. but i also have you know real world side which is like i understand optimality is not for everyone a third path, which I don't really understand is trying to justify certain addictions or proclivities and reprogramming everything around them. Like I have to bench five days a week or fuck why? Like I have to do it. So what do I do to make sure that it doesn't kill me? Like stop doing it. You know, they comical, but harsh too harsh, but still same idea. Analogy would be like, okay, is there a way for me to continue to eat shit, but not taste it? Be like, yeah, I'm sure the chefs can tell you herbs and spices and don't, don't put that much shit in your food and you won't taste a thing. How the, why the fuck would you put shit in your food? How about we start there? You know, <laughs> try not putting shit in your food. I know it's a crazy idea, right? So when people are like, well, I want to, you know, train twice a day, every day. I've actually had someone tell me that, um, you know, what, how can I manage that? I'm like, don't, <laughs> it's number one, you know, like just don't, it's stupid. Um, there's many other things you can do with your time and justifying poor training practices by re- reorganizing, you know, and like if programming is incredibly, we, we see something you and I always preach program is incredibly flexible to your goals. So it's not, it's not like, cause I like the reason most people don't train like that is not because they haven't unlocked a programming key. Like it's not like everyone's like, I would train 14 times a week if I could only program for that. You just, it's not that hard to program for that. You just, the SRA curves, you just line them up. Yeah. That's it. Right. Um, but it, the problem is, is that that kind of stuff is just a really bad idea. I'll give you a quick little story, a uh, little example. There was a gentleman named Art Atwood. He's a very, very good pro bodybuilder back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Unfortunately, he's um, since deceased, probably from drug-related causes. That's speculation, but he looked to be the type that ran a shitload of gear. Um, the circumstances of his death were well, pretty, you know, gear, uh, you know, the, 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 the bloodhounds would be all over that one, so to speak. And he was a super cool guy from everything that everyone said, super smart, trained. From what I saw, he trained twice a day, seven days a week for the most part. And people would ask him like, don't you take days off? He's like, fuck that days off. I don't like days off. I like to work, which is, you know, respectable. He tore his quad at a guest posing the degree of tenderness degradation that has to happen for that is monumental you start to figure out what does it take to train twice a day seven days a week well one of the things is that you just have to break down structures all the time and as we know from scientific principles of strength training connective tissues don't heal as fast as muscular tissues 
So his quads kept growing, but his tendons never could match up. And if you never back off away from that, or very rarely, it's not enough time for your tendons to get stronger. And secondly, the kinds of anabolic steroids that will allow you to train and recover mostly seven days a week, twice a day, are the very kind that actually either degrade your tendinous strength or don't allow it to improve as your muscles improve. Um, Trenbolone being one of the substances that's a likely candidate. If you run a, something monstrous like a gram of tren a week, you can train until you die from other causes or the tren, probably the tren, and never overtrain. It just will never happen. It, it's a miracle drug. But it's like the devil's miracle drug because it slowly kills you, first of all. And second of all, your tendons continue to get more and more um, or at very best case scenario, not much stronger. And your muscles just go like that. So crazy shit happens. Is that likely for naturals who are just addicted to training and have to be in the gym? Of course not. You're not going to get hurt very likely. But you are going to go to the gym increase your chance of injury just by a bit, increase your chance for too high a fatigue, and um, not get the psychological resetting you need every week, and eventually just increase your chances for burnout. So I would say that the best case scenario um, is to just train really hard on the sixth days and seventh day. If you really have to show up to the gym, go do cardio and do some abs. Uh, I don't think, you know, it's still training, right? Chief Steve, is that training to you? Do you feel like you train when you go to cardio and abs and stuff? Kind yeah, of, I mean, right? it's, it's still, I mean, I'm doing at the moment uh, AM and PM sessions six days a week. Um, but I, some of my sessions li are literally calves and abs and maybe some cardio and it's still a session is still like half an hour. I still can get a sweat on. Um, it kind of keeps my routine. It keeps me happy and gets me out of the house a little bit. Um, so, but I still need that, that seventh day off. And I think exactly. this is a, such a similar scenario to someone who is trying to avoid deloading. Um, yes. Yes. It's kind of like they feel like they're working harder by not deloading, or they feel like they can't take a, a break from the gym. Um, I mean, I still in the deloads, um, and I know you've recommended this. You can even put sessions together, so you're in the gym even less days. But yeah. I find I like being in there for my routine, and kind of it just keeps me. I'm used to it with my work and everything. Um, sure. I mean. I still take the deload. Um, I think it's kind of taking your medicine. You still need that day off is going to benefit you in the long run. hundred percent. So yeah, really well covered and we shall move on to the next question. Um, so they have asked what would be the maximal sets um, slash week for the same exercise? Um, so to avoid overuse injuries. How many times a week should one do the same exercise to begin with? So maybe start off with that second question and I'll try and figure out the first one. Um, so in terms of exercises, how many times a week? I guess it would depend on muscle groups, on the type of exercise yeah. and things like that. You know, it depends on a ton of stuff. It depends on individual genetics and responses. But I will say this. Um, just general advice. If you're training the same exercise more than twice a week, it's a questionable training program for physique and powerlifting. For weightlifting, they have to just because they compete in the movement. Um, the caveat to that is you may be able to get away with that. Uh, training twice a week is fine, maybe even three times, but then the uh, volume slash load 
uh, slash other training variable variation has to be injected into the program. So for example, if you're doing high bar squats three times per week, my fiance does high bar squats three times a week uh, on many of her programs. Monday, for example, will be heavy high bar squats for three or four sets, followed by slightly lighter high bar squats for three or four sets, main squatting movement. She's a power lifter. Um, Thursday, perhaps, would be lots of deadlifts first, and then stiff-legged deadlifts and stuff, and then much lighter high bar squats, but still, you know, decent. Um, maybe like 80% uh, of what she did on Monday. Uh, for less volume, again, so there's a volume change and an intensity change. And then Saturday, um, she does mostly upper body work, but in, in mind you, her program is bigger than this. It's got other days in it, but just for squats. Saturday, she does squats, but it's literally like 50% of her one rep max for three sets of five. It'll literally, it literally is only to brush up on technique and enhance recovery. And it works great for that. As soon as we introduced it, her squat started to move up and she just felt better. Her technique was more stable. But notice that while we are using the same exercise three times a week, first of all, she's a power lifter, right? So she needs that technical input. Bodybuilders don't need that shit. You know, it's not like you're going to forget how to squat for bodybuilding. If you only squat twice a week, even if you squat once a week. That being said, um, you know, it's uh, one of those things where if you look at it, yes, it is high bar squat three times a week, but it's high bar squat with lots of volume, lots of weight one time, high bar squat with much less volume, much less weight another time, and a recovery high bar squat. So the, the, what, what, what is it that we really have to worry about? We have to worry about overuse injury to the joints and the muscles, but mostly to the joints when we over-program an exercise too many times, right? That's really the big concern. You can obviate that to some extent by introducing volume and intensity manipulations and recovery and stuff like that. But coming back to our last question, just make sure you're doing it from the perspective of either real-world constraints or, or theoretical optimality and not from, I just want to do this exercise as much as possible because that's fucking stupid. And we already covered why that's stupid, right? So uh, yeah, you can get away with, I think three times a week in some respects, like the example I mentioned, the more times a week, I'll put, I actually make a more uh, general theoretical model here. The more times a week past two, two is fine. You can do some shit two times a week. That's fine for almost everyone. Anything past two, like three or four or five, six or five or six times a week doing the same exercise, the more times you do it, the more introduction of other variants, like volume, load, particular kind of execution. So like you could do a slow eccentric squat, like using a high bar squat example, slow eccentric squats one day, regular squats another, pause squats another, and then, uh, you know, a recovery speed squats another. Like that's four days of squatting. But it's really not of the same squatting, right? So the more often you do the same movement, the more different kinds of variations you have to interject. Um, but, and then the other, so, and that's fine, but the other limiting factor is always assess whether or not that's necessary for your program or are you just fucking around? Mm -hmm. No, great answer. And I guess that's the real value of da that's daily undulating periodization, I guess, on a large scale. Well, maybe it's not periodization right there. That's more programming. 
Well, daily undulating periodization is, is misnomer to begin with. It's, it's, yeah. it's just volume intensity variations in programming. It's been called that for years. The reason it's called daily undulating periodization, just like linear periodization, um, is it's, these are research terms in research journals so that people can have one term to differentiate uh, just two different kinds of quarks. You know, a lot of times, like, uh, in research, most of the time, they'll have these two programs. Neither one of them is something you would ever fucking do. They're designed exclusively to test theoretical concepts against each other, right? Like, for example, you say, you know, in nutrition, you say, it was one bodybuilder group takes 500 grams of carbs a day. The other takes 20 grams of carbs a day. A, a very intelligent person who's bodybuilding can say, what the fuck would you ever do either one of those? Wouldn't this middle ground best? You could be like, yeah, yeah, totally. But we have to find out to compare them just so we can develop ideas about what it is that high carbs do. How do they compare to low carbs? From there, we can set up the measuring stick and say, okay, where do we want our carbs? We know if we get closer to low, you know, these things they found, if we get closer to high, it's these things they found. So in exercise science, it's a similar idea. You know, the idea of DUP, I mean, there's really no such thing as DUP. I mean, the DUP is the use of volume intensity variation inside a microcycle. Yeah. It's been practiced commonly in, in sport performance circles since the mid-1970s and even earlier. So absolutely, this is an example of DUP, and absolutely it works. But remember, and again, another critique to extreme DUP some people will do DUP and be like, this lets me bench and squat and deadlift four, day, four days a week. And it's like, are you sure that's a good idea or is necessary? And they'll be like, well, I don't know. I just like to squat, bench, and deadlift. And you're like, oh, sweet. You know, I thought it was about building your total, but fuck do I know? You know, like, so it's one of those things like, you know, here's a good example. I keep saying if it's necessary, if you train at home and you have one squat rack and you don't live anywhere close to a gym or you can't, uh, get to one because of your work schedule perfect time to use those variations and to have multiple times a week where you do the same exercise so fuck how many exercises can you do in a power rack you know plenty but for the same muscle group you, you know like you can do so for example let's say you've got upright rows let's say you don't even have dumbbells you just have a barbell you can do conventional heavy barbell upright rows one time the next, uh, you know, two or, uh, you know, let's say another session in the week, you can do um, a slow eccentric, so up, up concentric, same way, slow eccentric barbell rows, uh, upright rows. And then the next time you can do pause at the top, slow eccentrics in a metabolite fashion where you only rest 30 seconds between sets. It's barbell upright rows every time, but it's a very distinct stimulus allowing the recovery curves and everything. And also it's not always super heavy which allows, or super high volume, which allows the recovery of joint structures to occur. But if your idea of upright rowing was like three by eight, four times a week, you will blow your shoulders clean off your fucking body. And then that's a really big problem. Yeah, I guess that's another, just thinking of uh, examples, calves, there's only so many calf exercises you can do. So these variations of volume and intensity and kind of metabolite techniques, um, I find there, and because calves can be hit with pretty high frequency, so you can train them a lot through the week. Um, I think that's totally. a really good use of it. Abs um, is another one. Yeah. Um, which are two areas I am working on a lot at the moment, although mostly abs, which is funny, although this is a complete side tangent because I know we've spoken about abs on the Q&A before about for bodybuilders and how, or physique athletes and how building them thicker might not be ideal because you want that trim waistline. A lot of my, well, my feedback from judges was that my abs basically didn't stick out enough and I need to thicken them a lot. Um, so that's what I'm now focusing on. Makes total sense. As soon as I saw your pictures from your shows and then you said you were working on abs, I was like, that makes total sense. 
the thing is your waist is so small and you're not running fucking growth hormone or insulin. You don't have to worry about your waist getting enormous. So yeah, training abs is a great idea. You know, most of the guys that are the best physique athletes in the world that have these little tiny baby waists, they train abs like crazy. They mostly just stick out forward. It's one of the, it's when you have a blocky midsection predisposition already, and if you're running lots of pharma, especially, that's when training abs might not be the greatest idea in the world. But in most other circumstances, I think it's just fine. No, brilliant. Um, and that makes me feel better about it as well because you've just confirmed that it was the right thing to do. Totally, man. Um, so we get on to the next question. Uh, so this is asking about a time where you've, well, actually, no, not just yourself, but also Greg McCall's um, has talked about inducing large amounts of muscle damage um, to get through plateaus by promoting myonucleation. Um, asking what's the best approach to do this? Is there kind of single brutal arm workouts, eight hour uh, piano style, um, or a mesocycle of high volume of low frequency sessions? And how often would you kind of utilize such an approach? Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure of Greg's thoughts on the matter. Um, but, um, so first let me just say this, you know, there's a likelihood here that these things are realities, but they're not very well confirmed. So there's a likelihood that extreme homeostatic disruption leads to more myonucleation, qualitatively, uh, improved level of myonucleation than, um, conventional training, but it could very well be that summated conventional training over the long term could be just as good. I, I find that unlikely, but it's possible. Um, myonucleation is not the only reason we do that it's just other variants of variables in functional overreaching especially as you get more advanced it seems like a truly superlative stimulus is damn near the only thing towards the end of your career that gets you to grow everything else is just like dick it falls into that the dead zone between MV and MEV like it's just not enough not enough not enough your MEV is right next to your MRV there's only superlative stimuli there right so I think that for most intermediates in most situations and, and some beginners and some advanced, really going to really, really high levels of disruption, whether or not that in induces a lot of muscle damage. Um, sometimes it doesn't induce tons, but it's just much more than you're used to doing. I think it's beneficial, but I think it's occasionally beneficial. I not a big fan of entire mesocycles of such training because the downsides are very, very high. Supercompensation has been shown to occur with a short bout of very intensive voluminous training and then a quick recession into normal training or even less than normal to allow the supercompensation to occur. If that is not a short bout, you get a non-functional overreaching, which is um, you did it by accident and then when you come back, you are not any better, you're just the same, uh, or overtraining, which is a very best case scenario, you come back the same. Most scenarios in overtraining, you come back worse and you have to crawl your way back. And in the very, very worst scenarios, you're never the same again and you literally can't ever get much better than you ever were. So that quest for ultimate gains, <laughs> yeah, we need I'll to counterbalance that big time. Um, because, uh, you know, the risks are there for sure. It's not one of these things like, you know, I'm just going to do a super high crazy volume and intensity mess cycle and I'll be fine. Like, it's just by no means clear you'll be fine. So where I'm going with this is, I think the normal 
training process, normal programming periodization, uh, have those phases already built in as your last week or weeks of every mesocycle accumulation phase. I mean, you're pushing to or past MRV every one of those last weeks. You get benefits of functional overreaching. And the good thing is, 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 is one of the big downsides of trying a shock phase is that if you look at injury rates in sport, some of the highest injury rates occur when you are used to doing this and you're asked to do this, right? People just get like hurt all the time, which is no fucking, you know, it's not, it's obvious, right? The good thing about functional overreaching in a mesocycle accumulation phase is you go, huh, huh, huh? This is fucked up, and then you deload. But you're used to this stuff, right? Your body's like, well, we just did a little bit less last week. This week's definitely going to push me over the edge. It's definitely going to initiate all these great processes we're looking for, but it's not going to be too much. So it's not going to be unprecedented. So I think that with the, the, the answer to the question of is it a good idea to challenge the body because we're beyond its limits every now and again, yes, basically once a mesocycle in the last week and then you get a deload week and it's perfectly positioned for that. So when people say like, you know, should I change my frequency and do these crazy strategies to grow? My usual answer is, man, you know, I've never uh, found the need for that either theoretically or practically because of what we do on our last weeks. Now, some people I think train, I would say to some extent wrong and especially intermediates and advanced. Some people train and they never quite push it super hard. Even on their last week, they don't ever push it super hard. And then they are missing out on those benefits. So I think a balanced training where you go from minimum effective volume all the way up to MRV or just above it and then deload, I think it automatically programs that, that really positive thing. What do you think? No, yeah, I know you've spoken about pulsatility within programming before, and I, I completely agree. I think the, the body responds really well to pulsatility. Obviously, too pulsatile is not good, like going from nothing to everything, just like going from, I don't know, you might enter the biggest calorie deficit you could possibly do, and your body's not going to be able to respond to that for very long because it's going to get exhausted. And um, this all is reminding me of, because I'm currently reading The Stress of Life, um, and it talks about kind of Sile's principle of like gas theory, and it kind of is this exhaustion period where you try and go for too long um, and yeah, you can take it too far. Whereas we want that adaption. We want that super compensation um, and yeah, just everything, almost anything in like biological related to the body seems to come back to these kind of thought processes of the kind of the stress an appropriate amount of stress enough to cause an adaption, but not so much that you cause too much and like an exhaustion going on. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And, and, um, the thing is, it's not just a, a boo-boo. If you go too far, it has serious repercussions potentially in going too far for too long. And, um, because the evidence on these is really magical effects of overreaching really crazy hard, isn't super rock solid. It's just not worth the risk because it could be that you can get 95% of these gains just by training, even never coming close to failure or never even coming close to MRV. And then what? You've been fucking over your MRV for three weeks at a time and then taking two-week deloads, and you realize you've just been risking injury this whole time or you've gotten injury. I, I think it's, you know, if we find out later in research that, yeah, you know, there really is a certain level of growth, especially for advanced, that is just unattainable unless you really push it to the edge. Great. But right now that's just not an evidence. And I certainly wouldn't recommend that knowing the trade-offs. <laughs> no, brilliant. Um, and in fact, the, 
Next question we've got um, is one from myself, and it's something um, only because I've been seeing it more so in my social media feed, and I'm not sure we've touched on it before on the podcast. I've not heard you talk about it, Mike. Um, And this is glucose disposal agents. I don't know if we've brought that term up, GDAs, before, um, and just whether or not they have any efficacy, um, because there's, there's supplements on the market that are kind of saying to have all these superb results and there's kind of cinnamon which is like a natural one you can take and i know uh rp plus have they try and talk about metformin i think that's what it's called but um maybe we'll leave that one because that's kind of um more out, out of the scope of this podcast but yeah uh, is there any efficacy to some of these kind of um kind of prescription um different and supplements that you can take for glucose. And if you don't mind going into what glucose disposal agents supposedly are meant to be helping with. Yeah, so in generally these um, substances improve your insulin sensitivity, especially what's called peripheral insulin sensitivity. And most of that is muscle if you're lean. Um, So if you're more insulin sensitive, all of the benefits of insulin, anti-catabolism, anabolism, recovery, they become more pronounced which is really good because uh, insulin is a you know, hell of a substance and we want it to be more effective. And uh, characteristically, muscle loses insulin sensitivity faster than fat tissue does. So the problem with becoming more insulin resistant is that your muscle really stops accepting as many nutrients as it could and growing as much from them. But your fat's like, hey, I'm still good, bring it in. And then you get fatter as your muscle gains start to decline. One of the reasons that massing infinitely and getting super fat, like a you know, 45-week mass phase in which you gain half a kilo a week doesn't really work well is because your muscular insulin sensitivity goes to hell pretty soon. And then your fat's still golden for a while. The thing is, when your fat starts to lose insulin sensitivity, you are pre-diabetic, and that's really not good. So... Um, these glucose disposal agents are various things that they're called supposedly increase insulin sensitivity and many of them actually do, you know, chromium picolinate, for example, comes to mind, um, something that Broderick actually has me taking. And, uh, the thing is, is that most of the ones that you can buy in a supplement store are really not very powerful at all. Um, to really benefit from glucose disposal agent, you want something like metformin. Metformin is a drug that's been around for a long time. It's on like World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. Um, and it's basically free. Um, it's uh, regulated. Like buying metformin, I think, is as illegal as getting like antibiotics without a prescription. It's like a formality. Nobody gives a shit. Uh, it's not enforced ever. Like nobody gets busted for metformin. It's insane. Um, it is a, it's a powerful drug, and I wouldn't just buy it and start taking it. you got to do it in concert with a very experienced coach, preferably a medical doctor, because um, it has some pretty big downsides. It can f- uh, fuck your liver up uh, quite, a, quite a bit. Um, it can do put you in ketoacidosis, which is not the same thing as keto. You know, no raspberry ketones for you. You're actually in a bad way. Um, but generally, it's very well tolerated. Um, there are many papers now about uh, that's actually uh, should be recommended to everyone to start taking after their teenage years forever because it seems to be a life extension drug. Give it to most animals and they live longer, which is pretty sweet. Um, so, you know, metformin is, you know, from what I understand, something like 10 times more powerful than all these other GDUs. 
um, uh, and or GDA, sorry. So, um, can you take them like cinnamon and shit like that? Yeah, sure. Um, can you? Will you notice an effect? Probably not. Um, uh, if you take metformin, will you notice an effect? Barely, but over the long term, it's a really good idea. Um, people who need to take metformin are people who are, who use growth hormone. Um, so if you're not injecting growth hormone, you don't need metformin. Um, it can be a benefit, probably, to some small extent for muscle growth. Definitely keeps you leaner, more insulin sensitive. Um, what really should be said here is if someone is looking into these things, they had already better be doing the training and the diet and the periodization correctly. Because if you want a really big impact on insulin sensitivity, you're going to stay under 15% body fat for males and 25 for females year-round. They're never going to get above that. You're usually going to train with high volumes, and you're going to do enough cardio to keep yourself in good shape. And um, that is going to keep you way more insulin sensitive than literally anything that's available on the market, legal, illegal, whatever. I mean, that's really how you do it. So if you don't have all those ducks in a row, all the shit will make a hill of beans difference. If you do have all your ducks in a row, all those stuff that you buy that's not a drug, it's not metformin or related substances, that will have a very small effect that you'll never notice, but pharmacologically it is working, so it could help you a little bit. And if it's worth your budget, great. Um, if you are taking special sports supplements, metformin is a good idea to take. Um, but consult with a medical professional about how to take it, when, et cetera, et cetera. So. No, yeah, it's, it's super interesting. I guess it's because the reason it's come up to me is because I'm following those people who do have their ducks in a row. Um, so it's only something I've then thought, is this something I'd be worth considering um, to implement? Um, and obviously the the drug I can't take as a natural kind of, it wouldn't be available, but um, it's interesting how it's coming up a lot but i think you're completely right in terms of the supplements as always are at the top of the pyramid you need to be lean you need to be training you need to be nice and healthy and like that's going to get most of your results okay. anyways 100 percent. and i just want to make something really clear you know i don't want to say that no supplements or no drugs are powerful like i'm not here to lie to people you know anabolic steroids are a revolution um, growth hormone is the tip of the spear. I mean, insulin is like God's very own drug. Uh, and the devil's too, if you do, do misdose mis it, you die. Um, but, you know, so when you look at pro bodybuilders, they're running all that shit, like for sure, right? But when you are like, hey, are you running curcumin and fucking, you know, inulin and whatever the fucking, you know, cinnamon and all the shit, some of them are like, yeah. Some of them are like, what the fuck is that? Even metformin, you got you running metformin. Some of them don't, you know, because it's not a huge difference. So I'm not here to say that, like, you know, all these, you know, metformin, like, oh, you know, why do people take it then if it doesn't make a difference? It does, but it's a super tiny difference. It mostly has to do with your health. It keeps your health better if you're using really powerful drugs over the long term. If you're not, man, you know, like Steve, I look at you, you got striated glutes. You don't know how to have any insulin sensitivity issues. I'm not so sure how much more sensitive to insulin you could get and still benefit, right? When your insulin sensitivity is so good, any better, you just get hypoglycemic episodes all the time because you need a bunch of carbs. They just go right in your muscles and you're like, fuck, start passing out. So I think you're good to go. And most people, drug-free bodybuilding are good to go. Um, older adults, maybe you should consider some of these natural remedies. Uh, and, and that's kind of my view on the matter. 
Cool. No, that, that's super. I mean, that's helpful. And I think because there is, I mean, there's so many supplements on the market and I know you in, in the RP diet book and just generally your recommendations, they're quite, I would say narrow and I'd say yeah. generally you're very skeptical and I'd say that's really good because these things cost quite a lot of money. Um, but I guess is in the note of kind of talking about the creme de la creme, most optimal results you could possibly get. Are there any supplements that you think are worth that you maybe don't normally mention? So like normally we're talking about creatine, caffeine, omega-3s, multivitamins. Is there anything kind of outside of that scope that maybe some of the listeners who are doing everything right might benefit from? Or would you not feel comfortable recommending anything else? Man, it's not that I wouldn't feel comfortable. It's just I don't know anything else that works. Um, I'll tell you this. That's Citrulline malate. Every now and again, people say it looks good. I haven't seen. I haven't seen the kind of volume of data I would need to see on it to really be sold. Um, Broderick is a good person when you have him on next to talk about what supplements should people who are on um, special sports supplements what supplements should they be taking to make sure they stay healthy and get the most out of the special sports supplements? There are some vitamins and minerals that like you just burn through faster if you're on gear. That's a real thing. Uh, it's still not that many, <laughs> um, but for drug-free people, fuck man, I, I can't not comfortable saying uh, that there's anything else other than the stuff really that you listed, man. I mean, uh, you know, if, if it's out there, I sure as hell don't know about it. So, no, I mean that's I think in all honesty, it's probably a big relief to some people and kind of, I think a slight nagging, Oh, I wish there was something that I could possibly be taking. It's one of those scenarios where we're all looking for that kind of golden thing that might like make the hugest difference. But I think, I don't know, it always reminds me of the things like, um, I've forgotten what the testosterone booster is, but whatever the natural one is, that's that's the one and like you can go with uh, like i don't know how long the period was but without kind of masturbating for a certain period of time you get a bigger uplift in your testosterone than this supplement would even provide so yeah and that uplift is like pathetic yeah. um just eating a good diet and getting a good sleep gives you bigger area under the curve testosterone oh my god dude natural testosterone boosting i'm just going to sum it up right here don't stress out too much. Make sure that you get plenty of sleep and eat a good, well-rounded diet, and you are already maximizing your testosterone levels. If anyone tells you there's a natural way to boost testosterone that's not that, they're probably full of shit. Plain and simple. Um, tribulus, remember, I remember there was ads for real Bulgarian tribulus. I'm like, <laughs> of course, I, I knew that plant only really grows in Bulgaria. Everything else is fake. Um, and, you know, the Tribulus supplements that you got came one of two categories. One, they really worked, and then you tested them. It was all D-ball. And then, two, they didn't do a shit, and you tested it in actual Tribulus. So um, it, the whole thing is like, it, you know, I'll tell you this, man. There is uh, like a, an ethical sleight of hand, not so much with the companies, but to individuals themselves, when they'll say, oh, that guy's on drugs, fuck him. And they'll just like take natural testosterone booster pills. That's a fucking drug, you dumb asshole. You're taking an exogenous substance to try to alter your hormones. You're on drugs. It may be called something else. It may be natural. Your testosterone is natural too, man. It literally, your own body produces it. Why not give yourself more? 
is there any, is remember the whole pro hormones thing? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, what's a pro hormone? Like, first of all, people realize there was no such thing. It just is a, something that metabolized into into metabolized into an actual steroid, or it's just an actual steroid to begin with. So it's it's one of these things where people look for, you know. Another thing that is a bit strange to me is when drug-free bodybuilders are huge supplement whores. Like you'll have – was that okay, Steve? You okay I, back there? I just dropped a pen. It's fine. <laughs> oh, right on. Um, have you been watching Stranger Things by any chance? I haven't, but I have seen people – yeah, I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's creepy, so I just assume you're under attack at all times. So. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's weird to see natural bodybuilders whore out like – 50 different supplements that they take like motherfucker you tell people you're natural but every single one of your seeming attempt is to put as much fake shit into your body as possible you know to uh to, to try to achieve the realm of peak performance it's like it's weird and the other weird thing also uncomfortable is when drug guys don't talk about drugs, which I can understand, but they like pimp out the supplements that they're contracted to pimp out and like say ridiculous shit about them. Like, do you remember the muscle tech ads from back in the day? Oh, yeah. It was like fat guy and then contest bodybuilder. And it was like, you know, hydroxyca. Like, did you mention clenbuterol and winstrol and growth? And are you guys out of your fucking minds? You wouldn't even notice the hydroxyca in the stuff. He might not even take it because if he took hydroxyca, he'd fucking kill himself with all that much gear. It's just one of these things where when the fundamental reality is that most supplements don't do shit, any kind of supplement whoring, whether you're drug-free or not, is fucking wrong because they don't fucking do shit, you know? Like, if, if steroids and stuff were completely legal, um, then you would see advertisements that were, in fact, true. It'd be like Trenbolone, and it'd be fat dude and really lean dude. And it'd be like, eight weeks, and people would be like, that's actually true. That really does happen. But then you'd be like, here's the shit that you don't, you know, bad side effects, just like five pages. It's like, you know, they do pharmaceutical commercials on TV. It's like Genuvia or whatever, and it's like the rest of the commercials, like you may bleed out of your ass into your own brain. You're like, how the fuck does that even work? So it's one of those things where the, the reality is that but for maybe 10, maybe 10, and probably more like five supplements, nothing really does anything. Whenever people start talking about, hey, is there a supplement too? At RP, we usually just go up, 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 up. How's your diet and your training? And they're like, well, you're like, are you trying to cut corners, huh? Like, we offer a lot of products and services at RP. We offer zero corner cutting because corner cutting is an illusion. First, first realization. Uh, and then after that, then you can start to make good choices, put into hard work over time take supplements that do work, the very few, and none of them work miraculously. And then shit happens. But yeah, the whole like, you know, ooh, if I take this little bitty supplement, will it help me a lot? Like, you know, the IFBB doesn't look like it does because of fucking chromium picolinate. I'll tell you that. No, I mean, oh, so much gold just there. I think, I think anyone who's similar to myself and kind of we look into all these things and you can, sometimes it can become a bit of a rabbit hole where you're trying to like do these tiny little tweaks to your macros or to get these certain supplements or like nutritional timing, like try all these different fancy things. You're just like, right, am I actually, okay, I've got my macros in check. I've got like my training in check, but am I sleepy enough? And quite like little things like that, or am I hydrated enough? And those little things like, oh, actually, like I've been pretty tired recently and uh, I haven't been nailing my sleep. It's like, well, that's probably going to make a huge difference compared to all of these tiny things. 
focusing on. Enormous. One of the things that I've, you know, met some interesting people in my life and one of the craziest things I've ever seen is people who run a ton of gear and like will party all night. They don't sleep. They, they eat super poorly or like miss a bunch of meals. I'm just thinking like when you sit down every fifth day or whatever, and, and, and like literally load a needle into a vial and pull it out and look at your own like fucking arm or thigh or whatever. And you're like, I'm about to make myself bleed and hurt by putting really powerful drugs into my body that will fuck up a ton of shit at, but on the plus side, I get to look like I train even though I barely don't. I mean, are you fucking kidding me? Like this is just, it's, it's totally insane shit. Uh, and some people are just fine with those kinds of trade-offs. Uh, my my suspicion is that those people don't really reason in trade-offs. They just reason in um, in uh, anxieties and in Im- impulses, you know. So, but it's one of those things. Like, yeah, if you're gonna, uh, I'll put it this way: if you don't have your big pieces in 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 effect, it, supplements, legal or not, are just a huge waste of your time. Uh, you're better off spending putting the big the big parts together. And once you put the big parts together, it's kind of like this like weird Buddhist realization someone comes to you and you're like a monk and they're like, I want to take all these supplements to be the best. And you're like, so you really want to be jacked and strong and lean. And you're like, yes. Okay. Well, you got to handle this business to put, you know, the diet and training and the sleep and come ask me about supplements. Right. And they're like, okay, all wise one. And they do all that stuff and they come back super jacked. And they're like, now what about supplements? You're like, you don't eat them. (laughs) And they're like, ah, shit. (laughs) You know, it's one of those like parables or whatever. It's like, once you get the good stuff going, you realize that the shit you thought was effective really is just icing on the cake at best. And sometimes just nonsensical. No, yeah, brilliant. Um, I absolutely love that. I think that's probably a good place for us to close um, because we've taken enough of your time. And as per always, I just want to say a massive thank you uh, for keeping it real. Um, I know everyone loves these podcasts. They love you, Mike, as a person. Um, And yeah, I know I... I, Idiots. (laughs) I pick up gold every time, even if it is just uh, what your favorite cereal is. And uh, I'm honored to be able to do this with you so often. So yeah, I just want to... No, I probably say it too often, things like that. I big you up too much. I should take it Yeah, down. you got to, exactly. You got to start being like, Mike is yourself. People are like, what is your next podcast with Mike? You'd be like, who? who? <laughs> Fuck that guy. Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's just, uh, on, on a serious note, it's uh, super, uh, super, um, it's an honor to be on your show all the time. And I love these kinds of questions. I love that you and I, um, just beat the shit out of the questions. We answer like three questions per podcast, but if you get your question answered, even if it's not your question, we will answer the living fuck out of it. Cause on Facebook, like I can only answer Like people are like, Hey, what do you think about the following three intersecting, you know, like your training variables and how they occur. And I'm just like, you want me to write you a fucking PhD thesis on a fucking answer? Like, I can't do any justice. So I end up doing like a couple bullet points and I go, oh, I'd love to learn more. But this is exactly the kind of place where you get to learn this RP plus when people can ask Dr. Hoffman and I questions. That's the kind of shit yeah. that I love being able to go in depth. Um, and I was going to say on a joking note, it's really sweet to be able to just bullshit and lie and make shit up and just get <laughs> fucking, get, I get to be on a podcast and just make shit up. It's great. I don't even have to know anything. I don't even have a PhD. You know, I just made that up. Right? <laughs> yeah. Not a doctor at all. I mean, a doctor's a nickname. People never understood <laughs> that. Dr. Mike Isratel.
Oh dear. Right. We will call it there. And uh, I want to say thank you to everyone for your questions. And um, as always, if you do want to ask questions, there's links below to the Facebook group where you can join and submit your question and we can get that answered uh, so we can yeah, beat it to death. So yeah, thank you everyone. Take care and we'll talk to you soon.